the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS On Air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zernio. Carol, as many of you know, is a nationally known gerontologist, a graduate of Trinity University undergrad, uh, University of Incarnate Word, where she specialized in earning her master's in gerontology. She serves as the executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation, and it's a delight to talk with her every week about uh, the kind of issues that caregivers and, and their families face uh, in dealing with uh, part of the uh, process of aging. Well, and and we've been thinking a lot about caregivers this week, looking at the news and all of the pictures of the hurricane, which we thought was going to hit us and then got poor Houston instead. In fact, as we record this show, it's still not over uh, in Houston, and it's now heading to Louisiana. And and one of the things, all of the stories that deal with uh, some of the issues that are involved in trying to rescue people, uh, the most powerful, and it went viral, photo uh, was folks in an assisted living home sitting waist deep in water waiting to be rescued, and they couldn't care for themselves. They couldn't get out. They couldn't do anything. Well, and you think about those are the ones in assisted living. Most people are in their homes, and so... You know, as I've been watching all of the pictures and thinking about it, you know, as caregivers, so many of us don't live with the person that we're caring for. And you have a situation like Harvey where you're geographically cut off. The water is preventing people from getting into these homes um, and checking up on their loved ones. The phone lines are down. I know, you know, we have one of our physicians uh, from the Rockport area that we know he's okay but we're not in communication with him on exactly what's going on. Um, and it's just such a difficult situation. I was thinking of the, the sheer numbers. Uh, you know, if 30,000 people are displaced and 25% of them are caregivers, um, where are their loved ones and who's checking up on them? Exactly. You know, you know we, we had our caregiver specialist call all the families we work with in the Corpus Christi area, um, but our phones are working. The phones aren't necessarily working in Houston. It's it's just an astronomical uh, toll that it's taking on the community. I was talking just uh, the other day with uh, Dr. Amy Lang, who is a medical oncologist and, uh, among other things, uh, gives chemo to cancer patients. And she was saying that her real concern is there's so many uh, patients just statistically in the Houston area uh, who are not able to get the treatments which they desperately need. Yes, with MD Anderson, and I know at WellMed, uh, we've been just talking about the the need for extra immunizations from the water, you know, tetanus and, you know, whatever other illnesses can come out of a waterborne environment. Uh, you know, people need those boosters. Uh, people need their regular medications. And the, the nice thing, you know, people do come together. Uh, some of the supermarket chains, some of the pharmacies are coming together and they're, they're waiving some of the rules about refilling prescriptions, where, what's in, in your plan and what's not in your plan. It's, you know, let's just make sure that these people get the medications that they need. But I think the bottom line is all of this is, you know, in a hurricane, yes, you have a little bit of time. Houston didn't have much time uh, to plan. That's right. But that all of us need to have some sort of an emergency plan. Tornadoes you don't get to plan for. Um, and when the hurricane, and we had one here. And we we had one here that hit, you know, right where you and I live. Yes. You know, it just uh, was sheer dumb luck uh, that our houses weren't affected. Uh, and, and so the, these kinds of natural disasters, uh, and then there can be man-made uh, things. You know, we've had uh, refinery explosions and other kinds of uh, business disasters. Really, if you're a caregiver, please have a, a plan B. You know, uh, think about worst-case scenarios and, and what-ifs. 
you it, what if if you can't get to your loved one if your loved one can't evacuate on their own what do you do what do you do wow. what do you think you would do i have to tell you this is a little sidebar to this story but they should not have named a hurricane harvey i, I just I, it it does not well, drive that, fear through your heart. You're thinking of Jimmy Stewart and the and the, the show Harvey with the big white rabbit. Yeah. But you know, my son, who often comes up with interesting facts uh, this week, this is Ben. Has been, this is Ben, who's been telling me that they used to name hurricanes after politicians um, because that was kind of their uh, politicians they didn't like. They name a big storm after them and show them how rotten they were and the devastation that they caused. So we're not. I don't know if it. They used to be all women too. Well, uh, po- women politicians. You know, so who knows what what's right? But but Harvey now will be retired. We should, we, we, it could be interesting if we just named him after people. You know, you take turns of the person you want to call the storm. Hurricane Ron. Hurricane Ron. See, Ron's not menacing either. No. Harvey is not menacing, but no. he's sure doing a heck of a good job. Boy, I'll say. By the way, if you've just joined us, this is WellMed uh, opportunity to bring you Caregiver SOS on air on nine thirty a.m. The answer. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. My mind is wandering here. You, you, well, about, you were thinking about the WellMed Charitable Foundation yes. and our upcoming Caregiver Summit. I was, which is coming November 9th. November 9th, and we are so excited about this. You know, once a year, we uh, call in some of the best and the brightest to talk about issues related to caregiving. And hopefully, many of you listening got to hear Barry Jacobs. When we had him on the show, he blogs and writes for AARP. And, you know, this year, we really wanted to focus on the positive. And Barry Jacobs is one of those that really thinks about caregiving from a positive perspective and helps us see you know, the good and and what we're accomplishing. And so oftentimes we get burdened and we don't feel good about where we are as caregivers. So Barry Jacobs is going to join us. Um, Dr. Nicholas Moosey from the Barshop Institute on Aging. You know, these are the people that are doing the coolest research around Alzheimer's and aging. A medical doctor and a scientist. And a scientist. I mean, does it get any better than that? And, taught at Harvard, and and he's got he he has you know wonderful stories to tell. He 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 has been a caregiver. I know he had dementia. Um, he, I believe it was his father had dementia. So he comes at all of this from a, a really strong place. And then Cynthia Hazel, um, who you know talks about spirituality and healing. So we're gonna we're gonna be warm and fuzzy this year. We're gonna talk about things that are gonna make you feel good in your heart and your soul. Uh, it's November 9th, and if you don't live in San Antonio and you can't come, it's okay because we will record this. We'll post the podcast um, and the video on our website. Uh, so go to caregiversos.org and look for that registration. It's coming soon, and put that on your calendar uh, to check out our Caregiver Summit. It's free. It's free. But free do, flu shots. And we have free flu shots. And you do and need lunch. to register because we have free lunch. And we don't yeah. want to have three lunch and 250 people. Wow. So uh, it, it can sell out. Uh, it does sell out. In fact, it was, it's been sold out the last two years. Um, the space that we have holds about 250 people, and that's what we've had. It's also, if you have not been to the uh, Wheatley Theological Center, a neat venue. Oh, it's a beautiful. It's got it's a gorgeous. grotto. I mean, it's a theological center. It's, talk about something that's quiet and, you know, kind of makes you feel renewed. That, that's a wonderful place. And uh, great parking. And great parking. So, hey, what's the complaint about, right? I, I would not complain. Now, Carol Zerniel, who is our co-host, just pulled a list out from underneath her stack of papers, which are the upcoming caregiver teleconnection sessions. Well, and you, if, if you we, don't know about the teleconnection. Right. We haven't talked about the teleconnection in a while. So I just want to remind our listeners that we do have a telephone support program, the Caregiver Teleconnection. And we have experts on the phone on a one-hour conference call. It does not get any easier. You register for the teleconnection at our caregiversos.org website. You get a listing of our calendar. And just listen what's coming up uh, in September. Jenny Funk from the Alzheimer's Association is going to talk about younger onset Alzheimer's. So many of us know someone who developed Alzheimer's in their 50s or 60s. That can often be different than someone who's in their 80s, that trajectory. Um, Dealing with grief and loss with Linnell Bond. That's um, our friends up in North Texas are going to talk about grief. Uh, We're going to have Dr. Susan Eppner, who's a neurologist, talk about strokes. 
uh, and strokes are still so common uh, and the needs of, of dealing with caregiving needs for, for stroke victims. And then we're going to have the paradox of loving life while caregiving, again, walking on the positive side, um, a licensed clinical psychologist, uh, Maria Sirwa, who we've also had on the show before, who um, is an excellent speaker. You'll get a chance to hear her again. Uh, she's the author of a short course in happiness after loss. Uh, so check out the Caregiver Teleconnection. Go to caregiversos.org and register. And it's free. And it's free and it's easy, and we also record these. If you can't join them live, um, you can go back and listen to the podcast on those. And I love the description. When you first rolled this out a few years ago, you looked for the most basic technology so everybody could participate. Well, I know about half the time at work we have webinars, WebEx, and half the time I can't get on them because of access issues. So we just want to make it easy. If you have a phone, that's it. All you need is a phone, and you've got access to all these experts, neurologists, psychologists, clinical social workers, folks with Alzheimer's expertise, all just with your phone. And our own Dr. Jamie Heisman from Take 10 participates. He does, and he, he, we had him on about a month ago, and he always uh, fills the phone lines. So you cool. get a chance to talk, ask questions, talk to other caregivers. It's interactive and easy, easy, easy. Speaking of caregiving, burnout is a huge challenge and a risk for caregivers. Well, how, how do you avoid it and how do you deal with it? You know, I'm glad that you asked because burnout is like the number one issue that caregivers have to face. Um, and we know caregivers get burnt out uh, and you'll know you're burnt out. If you're not enjoying things or your family member's not enjoying things that you used to, to like to do, you, you know, you're getting negative feedback at work. Uh, you're, you're having trouble with your spouse. You're angry all the time. You're not sleeping well. If you're a caregiver and you've got those symptoms, you're probably talking about burnout. So what do we do about it? To get help. To get help. Well, you do need to get help, and that can be from a therapist. It can be from a support group. You know, one of the easy ways we're talking about positive energy is actually writing a gratitude list. This is something that we teach uh, in our stress-busting courses, is writing down every morning just three things you're thankful for and realizing that you are not in the black hole completely, uh, that you may think you are unless you're in Houston in a hurricane. Um, but just writing down those three things that you're grateful for, uh, making is a little bit of time for yourself. Maybe it's two minutes. Uh, and, and then all of those things you can't control, make a list of everything. It's like gravity. You're not going to do anything about it. Make that list and let those go. And that's going to you know, like hopefully that. get you a, a little bit of elevation in your cool. mood. Incidentally, we're going to be talking in, uh, in, in just a moment uh, about an issue involving uh, a woman who... Uh, began nursing in 1972, went on to become a nurse practitioner, also at the same time uh, helping her sisters care for a mom with dementia. We talk about that coming up next right here on Caregiver SOS On Air with Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it, but with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Thank you so much for sticking with us right here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernel. And as we have been promising you, we'll be talking with nurse practitioner Linda Beckett. She's with the WellMed Clinic in Grand Prairie, just outside of Dallas. Uh, but she's got a San Antonio connection. We'll find out about that in just a minute. And I uh, wanted to welcome you to Caregiver SOS On Air. Linda, thanks for joining us. Yes, thank you. 
you were telling us when we chatted briefly off the air that uh, you actually have a, a San Antonio connection. Uh, back in the 70s, you did your first nursing uh, uh, here at Santa Rosa. Right. At Santa Rosa Hospital, I trained. Got my, my first nursing experience was at Santa Rosa in 1972. I went to nursing school there. Now, what drew you to the field of nursing? Well, actually, my stepmother was a nurse. And when I was in high school, I was sent to live with my dad and back in Odessa, where I was from. And she was a nurse, and I'd watch her get in her uniform and go to work every day. And I thought, when it was time for me to decide what I wanted to do, I said, I want to do that. Well, that's great that's, that my mother was a nurse, and her uniform never had that effect on me. It did. <laughs> well, it did. And so I, I really respected that. And so... When I started the nursing school, I didn't even know what an IV was. And you went to Texas Women's University in Dallas? I went to nursing school in Santa Rosa first. Oh, okay. You I, studied here. Cool. Yeah, and then I, then I came to Dallas and got my bachelor's, and then I got my master's. Right. And and being a nurse is a special kind of calling. You know, I say I didn't follow in my mother's footsteps as a nurse, but I have such tremendous respect for nurses, um, and you're a nurse practitioner, so you're really practicing at the um, top of the field. Right. And what attracted you to go into uh, nurse practitioning? Well, I saw things changing in the nursing field when I was in the hospital. I was working in intensive care unit then, and I had pretty much worked in every department of a hospital, and I was actually even a hospital supervisor at that time. And I just felt like, and I just felt like um, nursing wasn't the same as it used to be, and we didn't have the time to spend with our patients that we used to. And I thought I need to do something different where I can connect with my patient the way we used to be able to. And so I decided to go back and get my master's and do something that was a little more thorough. So um, over the years in nursing, have you seen sort of the the duties pushed down that things doctors used to do now, nurse, nurse practitioners are doing, what the nurses used to do, family members are doing at home? Yeah, I've seen things change a lot. The nurses just don't have the connection with the patients. It's not as personal as it used to be. And so it's more technical. And I'm sad to see that go. Well, you know, that's an interesting comment because I know there's conversations. My my son uh, was recently finished his residency, was in medical school. And so look, reading all the journal articles at the time, talking about how medicine became a science and we lost the social services side. We lost, you know, that it, what you're talking about, the connection with the patient as a primary piece of medicine. Um, do, you, do, you, do you think that's what's going on? Is that changing? I think it's changed a lot. But when I came to work for WellMed, it, it came back. Because this organization allows us the time to spend with our patients and have a conversation and connect with the family and the patient. And so I'm really happy to be with this organization. And it lets you know... Uh, a whole lot about that patient, which I suspect uh, enables you to do a better job of diagnosing and treating. It really does, because you really know what's going on at home. You know what their values are, and you know uh, how the family takes care of that patient and what their dynamics are in the relationships. You know, which is so important. I spoke with a physician, uh, not a well-med physician, you know, out in the community, and he had to see 35 patients an hour. That was his quota. That's impossible. You mean a day? Yeah, a day. Well, I'm sorry, a day. I said an hour, yeah. 35 a day, which if you divide that into the hours, I mean, that's just, that's insane. I've seen that. I've seen him see 50 patients a day. Well, so he sits on a chair in a conveyor belt, brings the patients <laughs> yeah, right fine. by him, right? Pretty much. And I was explaining to a patient today that I used to see 28 patients a day, and I didn't feel like I could even say hello and goodbye. Yeah, and now, now I can. I can really talk to them, get to know them, talk, give education, and uh, answer the questions. Well, how does that volume uh, of patients affect the ability to, to really treat, diagnose, uh, and, and engage in uh, wellness and prevention? 
when you're seeing that well, many a day? Well, it, it cuts it down. And really, I, like I was telling my patient today, after the patient would leave, I'd think, oh, I forgot to tell them this. Or, oh, I forgot to order that. And, you know, you have to have them called back in early, earlier than they would have been. So you can catch that. You have to put a note in the chart, remind yourself to do this and that. And so it's more visits. I'm sure they don't like that. But, um, you know, it it causes errors, omissions, and you have to catch up, and you have to write notes. And um, you try to get it all in, and you eventually do, but sometimes you don't. Stick with me just a minute. If you've just joined us, we're talking with nurse practitioner Linda Beckett. She's at the WellMed Clinic in Grand Prairie. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel on Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. So, Linda, you ha- you're a nurse practitioner, but you've also been a caregiver, uh, caring for your mother who had dementia, I think you mentioned, with your sisters. So you've been on the, you know what it's like to be that family member coming in and looking for help. Talk a little bit about your mother and your experience with her. Well, my mother, I was the baby, so uh, I was still working, and I had two sisters that were retired. And um, my mom started developing dementia in her mid-80s. And um, so uh, she moved in with my oldest sister, and my oldest sister was taking care of her, taking her to the doctor's visits and things like that. And I was doing the most that I could and still work. But the, the last couple of years, I was having to leave work to the emergency room and I was missing work, and it got really difficult, and I actually had to take some FMLA time uh, just to be with them. And that's family medical leave. Right. And help them with taking care of her, and it became really difficult and stressful for all of us. And especially since I was a medical person, they were leaning on me for advice, but then they wouldn't take it because uh, they didn't like what I was telling them they had to do. And so... It causes division in the family, and it causes stress, and then it's it's just such a tough time for families. And so since I've been through that and I see the families come in, I am much more cognitive of what they're going through and empathetic to how it really divides the family and how the stress is really so unbearable for everyone involved. And even the patient, even though they have dementia, they know how how hard it is for everyone concerned. Right. Well, well, give us an example of something that you told your sisters uh, you thought needed to happen and they were disagreeing with you, which is not unusual. Right. Well, they're, they're close to the end. They wanted to put her in a, a center where someone could be watching her full time. And my mom would look at me and say, they want to put me. They want to put me, but she couldn't finish the sentence. And she was looking to me to not let it happen. And I was telling them, don't do it. And they did it anyway. And it caused a real rift in the family. And how long was your mother in a facility? Uh, Off and on, she went to three different ones in three months. Three facilities in three months. Was there a problem with the care? Yes. What were the issues that you saw? She fell three different times. One time, no one even called us to tell us she fell. And when we took her to the emergency room, she had a broken leg. Oh. Wow. Yeah. yeah. And, but then she, and, did she try to get up after she had the broken leg? Yeah. She fell again and broke it in a different place. Oh, my. Yeah. Uh, the fell, you know, we, we've talked about... Um, you know, the the change of environment with people with dementia, uh, you know, unfamiliar territory. And then when you, they have a broken leg, but they don't know they have a broken leg. And no, it's, they don't. It's really hard to keep someone uh, off of a broken leg, a broken hip, uh, when they're not right. really cognizant of what's going on. Now, I'm assuming right. your, your sisters uh, wanted to uh, uh, put her in a home because they felt they couldn't handle, uh, oh, deal couldn't. with her anymore. They couldn't, and my sister was down in her back from trying to help mom. 
you know. And so then she was really helpless because she physically couldn't do anything. And so then we tried to hire people to come into the house, and then she couldn't sleep because there were strangers in the house. Right, right. So a lot of paranoia associated with dementia. Right. Yeah, it's it's really so hard. And yet you realize that it was becoming incredibly burdensome on your sister. You didn't want her institutionalized. What was the answer? What was your solution? We didn't have one. So uh, we had we went to hospice. With hospice. And so you said three facilities in three months. Did she only live for those three months? Yeah. Then she got really bad. She had a stroke, and we were in hospice. Also, you know, that's that's so hard um, to see that, you know, that decline and the confusion and you've got discord in the family. It is the worst of all possible worlds. So difficult. How are you and your sisters getting along now? Oh, we're fine. Everything's fine. Well, that's good. Yeah. Because in a lot of families, you know, a lot of families, they never get it back together. I know, but they should. They should get past it and realize it was just a difficult time. All right, stay with me. We're going to come right back to you. Going to do a little business at our end. We're talking on our Caregiver SOS on-air hotline with uh, Linda Beckett, who is a nurse practitioner with WellMed up in Grand Prairie in the WellMed Clinic there. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, talking about not only her professional experience as a nurse and then a nurse practitioner, uh, but the challenges caring for a mother struggling with dementia. We're talking on the uh, Caregiver SOS on-air hotline with Linda Beckett, a nurse practitioner with WellMed up in Grand Prairie, just outside of Dallas. I'm Ron Aaron, along with our co-host, Carol Zerniel. Uh, Linda is a nurse practitioner, graduate of Texas Women's University, the Dallas facility, where she got both her undergraduate and her master's in nurse practitioner, and we were talking with her about her experience. And I was curious, uh, you began nursing in 1972, so you've been able to see incredible changes, not only as you were talking earlier uh, about the day-to-day ways in which nurses don't, in some cases, have enough time to spend with their patients. What have you seen from the standpoint of uh, technologies, uh, new, new ways in which we can diagnose and treat patients? Oh, it's amazing. I, I, you know, when I first started out, they were still doing radium implants in women for cancer, for uterine cancer. And I can remember going in rooms that had the radioactive uh, sign on the door. And now it's just a world of difference. And with the CAT scans and MRIs and things that we have now, it, that was like science fiction back then. We didn't even know CPR back then, really, compared to what it is now. Well, and I'm amazed. I'm amazed by the the CAT scans, all the brain scans are in color. All the, everything lights up. I just want to get in one of those machines sometime and just see what happens. I don't know. Yeah, just curious. And the PET scans and uh, the blood tests that we can do now that we could we had no idea back then, and so. Uh, we can do genetics now, and everything is it's just so amazing to me. And the medications that we have available for our patients now, it's, it's wonderful. Well, my son was telling me last night that the first person that recommended hand washing as a way to prevent spreading germs was actually um, imprisoned uh, in a mental institution for being crazy. That washing your hands can actually cause disease. I don't know. Okay, this is a chance for all of you out there to fact check my son. (laughs) But he loves to read strange, you know, those strange and wonderful facts uh, online. And so, you know, when you think about how far we've come since then, um, it it would seem like, you know, hand wash. We went went from hand washing to, to the little gel stuff. We don't even have to wash our hands anymore. We just spray gel. And the flip side of that, Linda, is has it actually made patients better? Has it sped treatment? Has it made them healthier? Has it enabled you uh, to confirm diagnoses and then tailor treatments to them? Is the world of the patient much better today than it was 30, 40 years ago? I think so. I think that uh, some people get cynical about 
you know, the direct-to-consumer ads or creating their own diagnosis and selling their medicine and things like that. But I don't think so because the patient comes to the provider to get the education. So, you know, when they come in, they come to us to ask for our advice, and we have to be sure we're giving them the correct information. Don't let them come in and uh, order a cheeseburger. You let them come in and ask the questions and say, do you think that's what's going on? And then you tell them you know, whether or not it is. So you don't just write a prescription because they came in and said, I think that's what I've got. Can I get that pill? Well, so, well how do you think, have things changed for family members? So we've seen all these advances in medicine and technology, but when you walk in the room with your mother to the doctor's office. Um, do you think that things are different for the for the family member uh, with uh, dealing with caregiving issues? I don't think so. You know, it still comes down to the basics of taking care of your family member. You're going to have to have them at home. You need to know uh, what to do uh, when it comes to nutrition, uh, skin care, uh, what doctors you need to see, and, and can one doctor take care of everything? And most of the time, a PCP can take care of most everything, and if they can't, they tell you, no, really, you need to see this other doctor, like a neurologist or something like that. Well, I'm interested so, that you mentioned nutrition, because that doesn't come up that often. Is that something that you talk about regularly with families, the importance of nutrition? Absolutely. Because most elderly people end up with a protein malnutrition. But you have to be careful, too, because certain diseases uh, like kidney failure in the elderly, they're only supposed to eat so much protein. I have to be careful about eating too much potassium in their diet. People with congestive heart failure can't take in a lot of fluids. So you have to educate the family on what they can and can't do as far as feeding and watering and what type of foods they should eat. So that's a very important aspect of care. Now, because you have been a caregiver, I suspect you're a lot more sensitive uh, to the situation that caregivers uh, find themselves in. Uh, do you see that understanding throughout your clinic and elsewhere that uh, healthcare providers are becoming more and more sensitive to the needs of caregivers and the role they play? Uh, I think that uh, maybe the older ones, like me, but uh, unless you've been through it yourself, you don't realize your family members really don't know what to do. That's because true. My family, That's my true. My family members really didn't know what to do. My sister's like when I would say she needs something for pain, and they'd say no because it knocks her out. But sometimes you really do need to give them something for pain. Right. I can remember with my mother having Alzheimer's. I mean, that's what's so difficult when someone has dementia and they can't communicate that they're in pain. Uh, and, and she went to live in a memory care unit and she was having terrible behavior problems that she hadn't had at home. And we're like, is it the move? But what we realized was that she had sciatica and she just needed, you know, some Tylenol, something just to take that edge of the sciatica because uh, she was sitting on hard chairs and at home she always had a cushion that she carried around. And she was always on something soft and squishy. Uh, and so once she got on the Tylenol uh, routine regularly to help, she didn't have some of the behavior problems. But ha- connecting those dots from she's acting out to what could it be, you know, diagnosing that when someone can't communicate it, you know, it's really kind of like a, you have to be a private eye, a sleuth to figure it out. Yeah. I say that every day. I tell my husband, I'm like a detective. And I love that. I think that's true. By the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9:30 a.m. The answer. Our very special guest on our Caregiver SOS on air hotline, Linda Beckett, nurse practitioner with Wellman in Grand Prairie, Texas, up near Dallas. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zernil. I was going to ask you about that because a part of what you do as a nurse practitioner, as MDs and osteopathic doctors do as well, you are able to diagnose. Uh, and identify what the issues are a patient has, and it very much is detective work. How, how did you it learn? Is. How did you learn to do that? Well, there's a lot of trial and error involved, but also there's a lot of critical thinking because you start looking at the problem, you think, why? Why is this happening? 
And so you just start eliminating. You, you start with a larger picture, and you narrow it down until you finally pinpoint exactly why is this happening like this. And you eventually, it's an art, and you eventually learn how to do that, and it comes with working with a lot of different people, getting a lot of experience, a lot of input from all the uh, colleagues, and you develop that talent. Well, do you think, you know, for younger providers coming up, younger physicians, nurse practitioners uh, that are getting in the business, are they getting the training that they need uh, coming in to be able to sleuth around like that, uh, to be able to read that whole family, or is that just something you've just got to have the experience and develop it? Well, they get they have the basics. We all get the basics, and then as we come out, it's really important to uh, work with your colleagues and ask those questions and talk to them about things and, you know, kind of uh, run it by someone else, talking to them and listen to what they say and always get two or three different people's opinions on it and weigh it out. And that's how we really develop our skills. Well, if you were looking at the future and you were developing a wish list for people, you know, in medicine, uh, in the future, or family, you know, people working with people, uh, families with dementia, they're dealing with. What would be your wish list? What's still missing in the great equation of healthcare and medicine and families? Oh, that's a huge question. I think that probably some kind of group therapy sessions for people with dementia when it's first starting out, and bring the family members in with the patients, and so they all kind of start learning how this is going to transpire over the years so that uh, when it's first getting started, everyone has a clear picture of how it's going to go. I think that's a great idea. I'm writing it down. You can't see me, but I'm writing it down. In your mother's case, (laughs) you mentioned that uh, your mother started showing uh, signs of dementia. What what were the signs that uh, you and your sisters were seeing? Well, you know, she got quiet. She started not talking very much, and I've learned that's a really good clue. When the uh, people who used to be sort of gregarious and outgoing and like to have conversations, when they sort of start getting quiet, you need to look at that. Well, just that, you know, that that change in behavior, that change in personality, you know, we talk about that with family members. You know, there, there are normal you know, changes that happen as we age, personality change is not one of them. That's always a danger sign. And one of the things that uh, Carol recently brought back from a conference she went to uh, is if you are worried about developing dementia, you will develop dementia. Well, it increases your chance. The research shows that it might increase your chances or anxiety is the first symptom of dementia in later life. (laughs) Wow. So every time you forget where your keys are, you figure, man, this is it. it. Oh, I do that anyway. I'm on a slippery slope, right? (laughs) So how did you, when you began to to be cognizant of those changes in your mom, uh, what did you all do? Well, we started to bring her out to try to get her out more. We took her to the store a lot, took her out walking, you know, to the mall, things she liked to do. Uh, we took her to the doctor, and he uh, wanted to put her on the patch, but she wouldn't let him because it breaks her skin out. What, what so, kind of patch? Uh, the Exelon patch for dementia. Right. Right. And then we tried to put her on one of the medications for it, but she has... Um, allergy reactions to all kinds of medication. She's one of those, I'll take a Tylenol people. And, huh. uh, yeah. So, Spray her um, with Windex. Did you talk to her about it? We did. And uh, she said, yeah, I wish I could express myself. And it just kept happening. Wow. Oh. Well, and that's, you know, I, I think about what that feels like on the inside to, you know, she must have been terribly fearful if she was always gregarious and outgoing and now afraid to make a mistake, not sure she, what she was going you know, to say or use the right words. I mean, you know, it's it's got to be terrible on the inside of that. It is. A lot I of stress tell. and fear. I could tell. I could tell she was so scared. So how did your families getting along now? Um, after your mother 
uh, past. You know, what were you all able to look when you look back? Is it like you're looking back at three different pasts or do you kind of see this is where this is this is how it happened? And, and we can all agree that uh, we did the best we, did we could. The best we, could. we did the best Absolutely. we could. Absolutely. Hey, I want to thank you so much for talking with us, Linda, and for sharing uh, both your professional background and experience and uh, the experience you had in, in trying to help your mom uh, deal with uh, with dementia. Thanks for joining us, and good luck up there in uh, Grand Prairie at the WellMed Clinic. Well, thank you for calling. You take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. I love her little accent. That's cool. I know. I'm ready. I, you know, I, I was thinking I wish she had been, you know, I would have, if I had her as a nurse, I would be totally happy. You'd feel better already. I would, I would just, listening to her voice. Linda Beckett, WellMed Clinic up in Grand Prairie. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel. Don't touch that dial. Take 10 is next with Dr. Jamie Heisman, me, and Carol Zerniel. It's hard to believe, but this all began in the year 2010. Has it really been that long that we've Dr. been together? Dr. Robin Eikhoff, Ron Aaron, WellMed Radio. What a terrific ride it's been. And since then, and continuing, we have talked about everything. We've talked about medical issues, we've talked about legal issues, end-of-life issues, and the list goes on. You name a disease, and we've covered it, with answers for people who have it, aimed primarily at seniors and their loved ones. Seniors and caregivers and grandchildren and on and on. So why do you like doing radio? Well, I love spending time with you, Ron. Oh, thank you. That's one of my favorite parts. Well, I appreciate it. But that. I like educating, and I like educating patients and family members. There's so many things that we can do with this outreach. So listen to WellMed Radio and get healthy. Ron Aaron, Dr. Robin Eikoff. We come to you Sunday afternoons at 5 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. Thank you so much for joining us for the end of our Caregiver SOS On Air program when we bring you Take 10, uh, which really could be the beginning of the show. It's a great end, great beginning, whatever. I'm Ron Aaron, and our special guest, Dr. Jamie Heisman, joins Carol Zerniel and I. Dr. Heisman, a well-known, nationally known psychotherapist and expert on caregiving and addictions. And Carol Zerniel, you've got a great topic that uh, is much in the news of late, dealing with seniors and hidden addictions well i think the reason we're seeing it in the news is obviously the death of prince who supposedly had a very quote clean life um and yet was addicted to painkillers and so there was a piece in the new york times about prescription drug abuse among older adults which a lot of us don't think about i know jamie knows about it but a lot of us are are surprised by that and how um how drug abuse can be harder to detect in older people. And and so, Jamie, my question is, why are all of a sudden older adults becoming, quote, drug addicts? Well, let's frame this up for a minute, because, you know, this is an American phenomenon. Though opiates obviously are prescribed all around the world, 80% of the opiates that are used are used in America. 80%. How do you know that? Well, I know that because as an addiction professional, um, we've seen that, that America has this absolute driving need for the quick fix, for the blue pill, for the purple, you know, the medicine. Um, so We so, are a pill-driven society, a disease society, a disease-driven society that goes to that pain relief first, goes to that, you know, pill first. And so that's just putting it in national and international context. But when you come down to America, Ron, 40% of the prescription drugs sold in the United States are used by the elderly. So give me an example of a, a drug that would be an opiate, that a common well, you know, common name, a common prescription drug that a senior might be taking that's Oxycontin. Oxycontin, exactly. Oxycontin, hydrocodone, uh, those medications. And obviously those are opiates. When you're looking at benzodiazepines, that's more the Xanax world. So um, like the Xanax, but, the Valiums, what's Percocet? Yeah, Percocet is as an opiate. Is an opiate, and, okay. Uh, it's a painkiller. It's what your dentist so, gives you after surgery. Yeah, so those are right, names right. all of us know. All of us have heard of those, quote, painkillers. Mind you, now, physician practices are that if somebody does go through, let's say, a dental procedure, they're likely to get, you know, 10, 20, maybe 30 Percocets. Um, they may not even need them. They may not even, you know, it may not be the, 
the actual way to alleviate the pain, but doctors will just provide that anyway as pain relief. And I believe pain should be treated. I'm not on any sort of soapbox telling people not to, but there's true alternatives. Um, but just so your audience understands, though, if you will, chronic pain, insomnia, anxiety, uh, these are conditions that the seniors have, um, and these are actually conditions that are being prescribed for today. And how quickly do you become addicted if you uh, start taking Percocet? Let's say you really have pain, so you take one and two and three. Yeah, well, there's a lot of factors that go into that, Ron, and obviously if you have a genetic predisposition, uh, the American Medical Association has said this is a biological, psychological, and social phenomenon, but it is biologically predisposed. So many people who really start taking medication in the way you describe are off to the races. Well, um, and, and, the, and New York, then, the New York Times article said it can be as, in, as little as 10 days. It could be. And the definition of an addiction, I think, is best used, especially with seniors, who, by the way, are the fastest growing group of addicts and alcoholics in our country, is that an addiction is doing any behavior at all despite adverse consequences. So if your 10 days is starting to create a dependency, um, you know, the byproduct of medication, fogginess, you name it, whatever the, the, the uh, symptoms are, um, then misuse is, is going to follow because what else are you going to do? Besides, you have a very isolated senior population in America. Well, uh, the other uh, interesting fact that in the New York Times article, um, and this came out uh, just this past month on June the 11th, was say, they were saying that uh, women tend to become addicted more quickly than men, and that's probably because we have a, uh, our, we metabolize faster. Uh, small, usually women are smaller. Yeah, well, that, and that may well be the case, too. Again, it's biological, psychological, and social. But then you have to ask yourself, so how does a caregiver know when their loved one actually crosses the line that both of you are talking about? Because, again, this isolation is fertile ground for any addiction. All right, hold that thought. If you just joined us, you're listening to Take 10, part of Caregiver SOS on air on 930 AM, The Answer, with Carol Zerniel and Ron Aaron and Dr. Jamie Heisman joining us on our Caregiver SOS hotline. Uh, you say the caregiver would, would be the first line of defense. Uh, what do they need to know then? Is it, I need more pills, I need more pills, please give me my pills or I'll break your neck? Well, no, they will see their loved one, if you will, mood change. They'll see an argumentative mom, dad, brother, where they didn't see one necessarily before. Um, they may also see a sullen, withdrawn, anxious person that they did not know before. Uh, then you start hearing the excuses by the loved one in terms of the medication that, that they're taking, uh, which is a huge cover-up. Because what the medication becomes when it's a dependency is the best friend of that addicted person, meaning there's nothing that will actually take precedence. So they'll do what they need to do to hide. Um, and also you have to understand that they're being treated by physicians at hospitals, um, and there is a likelihood that Doctors are prescribing medication in different locations. And certainly when an addict becomes an addict, they start learning, especially as you see the boomers start taking hold here, of what doctor shopping is all about. Well, and I think you bring up a really good point, um, and that's another thing in the article. It talks about how people who go to, you know, seek out new doctors again and again and again, and even sometimes if they're in a small town, going to other small towns around there or maybe over even over a state line uh, to try to find medications and people that don't know that they've already got that prescription. But, but can't we solve this, Dr. Jamie, with a national registry of prescriptions? When you, when you get a prescription, it goes in this huge database and they cross-check? Well, we are doing that, actually, in many of the large pharmacies, pharmacies that you see, the Walgreens, the CBSs. Uh, but you'll also start seeing people start going to the smaller ones that are not necessarily a part of that database that you're talking about. Um, and you'll also see people turning to others in, or the streets, if you will. Uh, our loved ones are literally becoming addicts and looking for the opiates or hydrocodone or Percocets from anywhere once they're hooked. Well, and, and one of the startling things when we opened our senior centers at the WellMed Charitable Foundation is we have seen seniors trading medications out in the parking lot. Yes. Isn't that amazing? It, it does happen. Come to the, you know, a lot of this has to be true education, I think, given to our physicians first, 
and our health coaches and our social workers. Uh, these are the people who actually tap the caregiver and tap the loved one for signs to, to look for. Also, we're not doing a, a good enough job in offering alternative to the medication. As I say, certainly I'm not against pain management. I think it's vital um, and people should be treated for pain. But there's alternative sort of ways to approach it. You know, there's mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is what we talk about often here on the show, uh, meditation, if you will, um, stress reduction techniques like yoga and walking. And, and actually the most important thing, again, as always will be, just like why AA and NA work so well, is to make sure that you're a part of a self-help group because that self-help group knows you as well as anybody. Let, let me ask you a quick question. My mother, uh, who died in her early 90s, uh, had high cholesterol, and the doctor said, hey, don't worry about it. Eat what you want. Is there a real problem here if, if you just provide the prescription drugs? Somebody who's 80 or 90 years old may be hooked. So what? Yeah, that's what we hear. I hear that so often when I do an intervention. So what? Um, listen, we don't know the longevity of anybody. People are living a lot longer, even if they are addicted. And the quality of a person's life matters. But also not just that one person. Don't forget addiction is a family disease, Ron. It's like a, a pinball machine, if you will. The, the pinball goes everywhere. It hits brothers and sisters and fathers and daughters and uh, being, you know, it's no fun having an addict, an active addict in the family. So it is important to circle the wagons. And it's also there's some excellent, excellent senior addiction programs around the country because, you know, as America is, we're going to respond to a need. And being the fastest growing group of addicts in the country, uh, treatment centers are popping up everywhere. So how would we find one of those um, addiction treatment centers? What in, would we look under? Just addiction treatment? In 10 seconds. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, if you go to a geriatric care manager, you can find it. If you go online and Google Senior. But here's the deal. Just know that Medicare will only pay for hospital-based addiction treatment. Otherwise, it's self-pay and the freestanding. That's right. something you want to be mindful of. Got to stop you right there, Dr. Jamie. Carol Zerniel, I'm Ron Aaron. This is Take 10 on Caregiver SOS on Air on 930 AM, The Answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on Air. Presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net. And join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS On Air on 930 AM, The Answer. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.